I'd like to ask you to turn, please, to the most familiar text in the Old Testament. I'd like you to turn, please, to Psalm number 23. I imagine if you were to be asked, especially you children, if you were to be asked what is the most familiar text in the Old Testament, you would come up with that answer. It is Psalm number 23. It is one of the most stabilizing and encouraging texts in the Bible. And I have prayed that it would be encouraging and stabilizing to everyone whom God has brought together in this room this morning. This psalm teaches us that the Lord is our shepherd in every situation in life, that he is our shepherd in green pastures and beside quiet waters, and that he is our shepherd in the valley of the shadow of death, that in every situation the Lord is with his people. And this text teaches that the Lord restores his people when they are in declension. I'd like, us, I'd like you to follow as I read the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a very simple text that I would like us to look at. It's verse 23, the first part. The Lord restores my soul. And a simple text should have a simple outline. So the simple outline of this text is this. First is the assumption of the text. The second is the assertion of the text. And the third is an application of this text. When our children were little, we would ask them on Sunday afternoon if they could remember the outline of the sermon. Now you children, you can ask your parents if they remember this simple outline of the sermon. There's the assumption of the passage, and there's the assertion of the passage, and one application, an application from this passage. The assumption, of course, is that God's people suffer periods of spiritual declension. The text is, he restores my soul. The assumption is that the people of God need that. The assumption is that, that God's people suffer periods of spiritual declension. If I may repeat what I said at the beginning, this psalm teaches that the Christian, that Christian experience varies greatly. Verse two does draw attention to those times when our life is so placid, it's like we're, we're resting in quiet pastures and we're in the presence of still water and everything is bright and pastoral and clean and good. You have in verse for this picture of being in the valley of the shadow of death. And that is meant to convey to us all kinds of grievous circumstances. 
cancers or divorces or children who break our hearts, that in the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with us and will not fear any evil because he's with us and his rod and his staff, they comfort us. The end of the psalm makes it apparent that there will be sometimes we're in confrontations even with enemies. And even in that kind of a situation where perhaps someone's mocking us or we're having to struggle with someone's opposition to our faith, even in the context of enemies, the Lord is with us. The Lord prepares a table for us in their presence and he anoints our heads with oil. The psalm goes on to say that no matter what, the goodness and mercy of the Lord will be with us at all times. And at the end, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a lot of variation in that picture. And Psalm 23, verse 3 has this assumption that among those variations, those highs and lows, there will be periods of declension. The psalm assumes periods of declension. The Christian life is not constant. There are changes in different seasons and sometimes periods of decline. There are times when we find ourselves as God's people distant from God. There are times when we do not find delight in obeying Him. There are times when the dynamics of grace seem impotent before the power of our sins and the attractions of the world. Appreciate that, that there are times when the dynamic, when the power of grace seems impotent in the face of our sins and in the face of the attractions of the world. The Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament is full of different ways of stating these kinds of declensions. The 119th Psalm, the longest psalm in the Bible, is full of statements of aspirations and statements of commitments to God and commitments to the Bible and delight in God. But again and again in that psalm, he asked, the David asked, revive me, revive me, quicken me, restore me. And the very last verse of the psalm says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. In the context of all that expressed devotion to the Bible and all that expressed devotion and desire to fear God and please God, he acknowledges, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. I need you to seek me. I need you to restore me. I need you to revive me. If you know the Psalms very well, perhaps you are quite familiar with the 42nd Psalm. That's that cry of declension. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. They continually say to me, where is your God? I pour out my heart to you, he says. He says, I remember when I used to go to the house of God with the multitude of people. I used to go with joy, but that's not my state now. And he laments, why are you cast? The point is that this This is a frequent subject in the Bible. It's a frequent subject in the Psalms. It's a frequent subject where the experience of God's people is identified at all, that there's a lot of variation in the experience of the people of God, and sadly, some of that variation involves declension. It's true even under the new covenant with all of its powers and with all of its aspects of experience that are greater than the old covenant. You read the New Testament, the people of Corinth, there are many people in that church under the new covenant who are declined terribly. You read what is written to the receivers of the book of Hebrews, and that book is full of this concern that some of them are in such a state of declension that they might actually give up the faith. Again and again, even in the New Testament, this reality of declension is set forth. 
It's a universal problem for the people of God. And I would imagine if your biographies were somehow publicized, and if it was an honest biography, if you're a Christian, in that biography would be some times of declension. It's a universal experience of the people of God. The causes and effects of spiritual declension are many, and they're varied. Spiritual declension normally begins slowly and gradually. It may begin with some unusual discouragement. It may begin with poor health or prolonged exhaustion. It may begin with a spirit, a disposition that's inclined to be introspective and depressive. Spiritual declension may begin with a kind of general neglect of our salvation, just drifting away from the things of God. Those who are in decline, and if you've experienced this, then you will say amen with sorrow. Those who are in a state of declension find dullness in their prayers. They find the means of grace to actually be burdensome, that which should give us life and that which should stir us in declension, we find the means of grace to be burdensome and unprofitable. And if somebody in declension does in fact continue in the paths of obedience, they realize that that obedience is no longer animated by love. It's animated by some sense of necessity or some sense of duty. Sometimes spiritual declension will lead to discontent with God's providence. Sometimes it will lead to bitterness and to a secret sense that there's no profit in obeying God. You saw that in the 73rd Psalm from two weeks ago. Sometimes spiritual declension will lead to great sins as it did in the life of David. Sometimes it will lead to some kind of a, even a, a, a level of denying Christ as it did for Peter. Spiritual declension has many beginnings and takes many paths and expresses itself in many ways, but it is a universal experience among the people of God. The second and the best part of this text is the assertion of the text and that simply is that the Lord does, in fact, redeem, the Lord does, in fact, rescue us. He does, in fact, restore our souls. You'd expect nothing less if, if you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, if that's true, and given the disposition and character of God that is displayed in the Bible, if he is your shepherd and you decline, he will restore you. That's the assertion. That's even the promise of this text. God does restore his backslidden people. God has committed himself to his people. He has guaranteed his people's salvation from the beginning to the end. He not only promises to forgive us our sins, he promises to keep us on the path of faith and on the path of obedience and on the path of righteousness. And if we decline from that path, he is committed to restoring us. You may remember what Paul said, Philippians 1.6. He who has begun the good work within you will, in fact, continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. The person who has given you faith, the one who's given you faith and repentance and a longing to obey God, the person who has started that, God himself, he will keep that going. He'll keep us believing and keep us repenting and keep us obeying. That's his commitment to us. Now, in this text, there are two really obvious points I'd like to stress about this assertion. The first is that the focus of the restoration is the soul. The focus of the restoration is the soul. The assertion is that the Lord will restore the soul. The focus of this small text is upon the inner life, upon my real self. 
The assertion is not that God will necessarily change all of our difficult circumstances. He may do that. He may take us out of the valley of the shadow of death and put us back in a nice pasture. He may do that. But that's not the focus. It's the, it's the soul. It's not the circumstances that are necessarily going to be changed. The Lord restores whatever is wrong with our inner being. He fixes. He fixes my thoughts, my feelings, my attitudes, my opinions, my will. He revives my sense of his love. He revives my, my awareness of his love. He revives my expressions of love to him. He revives my desires for peace and reconciliation and holiness. The Lord revives us at the level of our souls. He brings influences to bear upon us which change, restore, revive, and enliven the soul. If your soul is hard, in your declension, if your soul is hard, he softens it. If your soul is discouraged, he brings refreshment. If inwardly you're rebellious, he gives repentance. If you're careless, he revives a fervent, referent, he revives a reverent fear of God. If our souls are dull, he stirs our emotions to zeal. If we are distant, he draws near to us and the Spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. If we sense a fullness of shame, he by his Spirit floods us with his love and an awareness of his forgiveness. If we inwardly are hopeless, he makes us to abound in hope by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Lord restores my soul, David says. Perhaps he will bring David back into green pastures. Perhaps he will not, but all will be well with David's soul. And if all is well with my soul, then all is well. And that's the focus of this assertion, the soul. But secondly, notice the other obvious, the agent of this restoration is, is the Lord. Now think of this, there are lots of things that the Bible says you must do if you're in a state of declension. Lots of things the Bible says that I must do if I'm in a state of declension. And David writes about the things that, that God's people must do if they're in states of declension. But this text is not about this. This text is about what God does. It's an assertion that God does restore the soul. The Lord is my shepherd. He will restore my soul when I wander from the path. The fact that the Lord will restore us, the fact that he will in fact restore us, that's what gives us hope. If you're in some kind of a state of declension, the knowledge that the Lord will restore you doesn't lead you to passivity, it leads you to hope. And whatever things we are supposed to do to be restored, it's the knowledge of the certainty that the Lord will work that animates us to any level of zeal in those duties which we have. And that's what David is stressing here. If I have fallen off the path, if I'm in a state of declension, Whatever else is true, this is true. The Lord is my shepherd, and part of that is he will, he will restore my soul. The Bible writers make a big thing of this picture of God's people being sheep and God himself being a shepherd. That's a large picture in the Bible. And I hope it won't be tedious for, for us to take a few minutes to appreciate this. We must see God in all the ways that he's presented to us. One of the most tender ways that he has chosen 
to picture himself and present himself to us is that he is a shepherd to his sheep. God has chosen some people. He has chosen them to be his sheep. He brings them into his pasture. He brings them into his fold. And as a shepherd, he provides for them. He loves them. He cares for them. He guides them. He protects them. If they get off the path, he protects them and goes and finds them and brings them back. That's, that's this picture that comes up in so many ways throughout the Bible. Let me give you some illustrations. Psalm 79, 3. Psalm 79, 13. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. Psalm 80. Psalm 80 is a, an extended prayer for God to restore Israel, for God to restore his people. And the prayer begins in verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And then there's a series of choruses. Restore us, restore us. You're our shepherd. You lead us like a shepherd leads his flock. Restore us. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. What? We are the sheep of his pasture. Well, I would like us to appreciate that in the prophets, in the prophets, the prophets enlarge upon this theme of God being the shepherd of his people. And in the prophets, there's a connection made between God's shepherding affections for his people and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if we can appreciate that connection, it's not wrong for us to read the 23rd Psalm to realize that David wasn't necessarily consciously thinking about the Christ, about the Messiah when he wrote this Psalm, but the prophets give us evidence that this shepherding work of God is actually going to be carried out by his great son. So I'd like you to look at just a couple of the prophecies. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, refer to one and ask you to look at the other. I'm going to refer to the one as in Isaiah chapter 40. The prophets envisioned a time of national declension. David is writing about personal declension. The prophets envisioned a time of national declension when the people as a nation were in spiritual decline. And God promises that in the light of this national declension, God himself will one day come and God himself will take this mantle of a shepherd and he will be a shepherd in an extraordinary way to his people. You have that in Isaiah chapter 40 in verse 10. Isaiah chapter 40 is one of those major glorious uh, proclamations of the Old Testament of this coming day, coming to them coming, when the Christ would come. And verse 10, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his work is with him. Behold, his work is before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. When the Lord comes, when the Christ comes, he's going to be this great shepherd to his people who are in declension. And he is going to feed them like a shepherd. He's going to gather them in his, in his arms. He's going to hold them close to his bosom. He's going to carry those who are weak, those who are with young. Those who are, he's going to do that. The next verse in that, verse 11, goes on to talk about God's hand, how the, the waters of the earth are in the hollow of his hand. And his hand is so immense that all the heavens are measured by the span of his hand. Well, this hand that is so immense 
that it in one hand measures the expanse of the heavens and in the hollow of his hands holds the, all the waters of the universe. It's that hand that shepherds us. It's that hand that, hand that gathers us and takes us in his, in, our, in his arms and holds us close to his bosom. This almighty God, when he comes, he's going to be this great shepherd who will shepherd his people in such a way that they will never want. Turn to this next passage if you can find this Old Testament passage of the book of Ezekiel. It's a large book. I think you can find it. I do remember the days when I would thumb through the Bible trying to find books that I didn't know where they were. This is so large that if you thumb through your Old Testament, you'll come to it, to the book of Ezekiel. I'd like us, just dawned on me that most of you aren't thumbing through your Bibles, are you? You're going through the index in your, in your devices. In the book of Ezekiel, I'd like you to look at the 34th chapter. It's the context that I described earlier, the national declension. It's at that point in the history of Israel where God is so distressed and angered by their national sins that he's sending them away out of their land into captivity in Babylon. But he promises, he promises that there's a day coming when he will be the shepherd of his people. He says the human shepherds, the priests and the prophets and those who are supposed to be shepherding the people of God, they had failed. And so the sheep are scattered on the mountainsides, they're wounded, they're bleeding. Nobody's interested in the sheep. The, the, the prophets and the priests who should have been, they've just neglected the sheep and neglected the sheep. And he blames the prophets and he, he blames the, the human shepherds. And then he says, I will come and do it myself. And notice the language that he uses, chapter 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among the scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they are scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Verse 14, I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pastures on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down says the Lord God, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. I will bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and strong and feed them in my judgment. And then look at verse 23. This promise, I will come. I will be the shepherd of my people. Now the Lord makes this very personal. It's actually going to be David who comes. Look at the language of verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Verse 30, thus they shall know that I am the Lord their God, that I am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. Well, this is a sample of what you find in the Psalms. One day God is going to come. His nation is in decline and God is going to come and he's going to gather up the remnant of his people and be an absolutely faithful shepherd to them. No matter how they might fail, no matter how the human shepherds might fail, God will not fail. But the decades begin to pass after this. Here's the promise, David will come, son of David will come, this great one will come, decade 
goes by, another another decade goes by, the people are restored from Babylon, some of them are back in Israel, the decades pass, centuries pass, God hasn't come, this great one hasn't come. And then almost 600 years later, almost 600 years later, Jesus stands up in Jerusalem and he says, as recorded in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own and lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have who are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock. He's standing up in Jerusalem. I am the son of David. I am God who has come among us. I am the shepherd that the Lord has promised. I am the good shepherd. I am the one who lays down his life for my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and they hear that voice, and they follow me. And there are Gentiles out there who are not of the original fold. There are other sheep, he says, and they must hear my voice and they will come and the Jew and the Gentile will be one fold and he will be their shepherd. Chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. And his Jesus Self-consciousness was such that he realized who he was and he realized who God the Father was and he realized the great God had made these prophetic statements. He says, my Father who is given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This great prophetic announcement that God himself would come God himself would, recline, would restore his declining people. God would be the shepherd of his people. Jesus is standing up saying, the Father and I are one. I'm that shepherd. I've come to do that work of shepherding the fold of God. I speak, my sheep hear my voice. I'm gonna speak outside of Israel. The Gentiles are gonna hear my voice. I'm gonna unite them together and I'm going to be their shepherd. So Peter writes of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.25. He says, we were all like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter was very aware of this Old Testament background. He was aware of who Jesus was. The Lord, he's saying that we were like sheep. We were like sheep off the path. And the Lord has come and the Lord has called us and the Lord has brought us to himself. He has brought us back to him, the shepherd and the overseer of our souls and he will never let us go. Jesus is the good shepherd of John chapter 10. He's the chief shepherd of 1 Peter chapter 5. He's the great shepherd of Hebrews chapter 13. He's the shepherd of Matthew 18 who does not want even one of the least to perish. He's the shepherd of Luke chapter 15 who when he finds one of his sheep is missing, he goes and he searches and he searches and he searches and he finally finds that sheep and puts him on his shoulders and rejoices over that sheep and he brings it back and all of his friends rejoice over that sheep. Jesus is that shepherd and he and all the angels of heaven rejoice when he finds one of those sheep and gets him on his shoulders and gets him back to the fold. Jesus will shepherd us all the days of our lives and finally, finally he will shepherd us into heaven. 
There's a really amazing passage about Jesus' shepherding work in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter seven. There's this picture, it's it's always a picture in the book of Revelation. There's this word picture of what it will be like to enter into the presence of the Lord. A picture of what it will be like to enter into the presence of the Lord. And some of us should be thinking about that. What would that be like to die and to enter into the presence of the Lord? Well, the picture is that Jesus has been a faithful shepherd to us during all the years we've known, known him. He's led us and we've followed him. When we fell into declension, he's restored us. And now in the final day, when we're just about to enter into his presence, you have this text in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 16. I'm just going to read it to you. They shall neither, this is entering into the presence of the Lord. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. Why? For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think of the language. Here is the lamb. This is a reference, of course, to Christ. Here is this picture, it's a word picture. In heaven is the lamb. The lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. He's the lamb on a throne, he's the Lamb of God who has been humiliated and died in the place of his people and suffered all the anger of God toward their sins. He's, he's as the Lamb, but he's raised. He's raised from the dead, so he's pictured as the Lamb in the midst of his throne. But what does it say about him? This Lamb in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to this, to the living fountains of water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The picture is that this, this Lord who is our shepherd, this Lord who has extended his voice and we who are sheep have heard it, we say yes, and we come to him and he loves us, what does he do? He provides for us, he cares for us, he shepherds us in all the affairs of life. When we decline, he restores us and he keeps shepherding us until that moment when he's finally ushered us into the fountain of living waters and God wipes away every tear. What a wonderful picture of Jesus shepherding his people from the moment he extends his voice to their ear all the way through all the variations of life, all the shepherding exercises that he engages in and at the end, he shepherds us into heaven. He shepherds us into the presence of God. The Lord is our shepherd. We can bring some of this back to Psalm 23. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He sought us and called us and we heard him and we followed him. And some of you can remember when you first started following him. Every time we declined, he sought us and called us and brought us back and we finally came to a point of gladly following him again. Sometimes he led us into green pastures and sometimes he was with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Always goodness and mercy were with us. Always he is restoring us and finally, finally, he shepherds the whole flock into heaven. And you who are the Lord's people, you who are the Lord's people and struggle with various kinds of declensions, this is where your mind should go. The Lord will not forsake you. 
however dull or distant you may seem at the moment, the Lord will do something to restore your soul. That's who he is. That's what he does. That's what he always does for all of his people. He will be faithful to you, and he will be faithful to his promises to you. There are so many things that you should do if you're in a state of declension. That could be a series of sermons in itself, all the things that you should do if you're in a state of declension. You should try to grasp the means of grace. You should give yourself to more exercise of reading the Bible, asking God to bring his truth by his spirit to bear upon your mind and soul. So many things that you should do. But the point of this passage is that the Lord will work. The Lord is a faithful shepherd and he, will com- he is committed to shepherding you to heaven. Now there is an application of this passage. There is the assumption that God's people will decline and need to be restored. There is the assertion that the Lord will do it. The Lord will restore your soul. That's the assertion of the passage. And now I'd like to make one application of this passage. And you can imagine that there really are all kinds of applications. I mean, if we step away from the text itself and ask how could this be applied to us who are the people of God, there are wonderful implications of this that could be explored. But I'd like to draw your attention only to one application. And that is that we must nurture a sense of God's love for us in our sins. And it's that last phrase that I'm trying to underscore, that we must nurture a sense If we're we're the Lord's people, we must nurture a sense of God's love for us in our sins. We must bring ourselves into conformity with what John writes in 1 John 4.16. It's a text that's really worth contemplating, 1 John 4.16. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. That's a wonderful posture to be in to be at a place where you've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. There are so many people in our time who are so emotionally insecure and so beaten up by their past or by life, it's very hard for them to be stable in the awareness that anybody could love them. But John could write that. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. If this text and its assertion is to actually help us at the level of our sense, at the level of our thinking, at the level of our feeling, then we must nurture a sense of God's love for us in our sins. We must train our minds to understand and believe that God certainly loves us in our sins. It's maybe easy for some people to think that God loved me when I was not a Christian and certainly I was a sinner. And it might be easier for people to think that with all my faults, I'm not too bad now and it's wonderful that God loves me. But we need to nurture ourselves and train ourselves rather, train our minds to understand that God certainly loves us in our sins. We must nurture a felt sense in our hearts that the Lord's compassions for us and affections for us and yearnings for us are stirred when we sin. And maybe it would be right to say they are stirred especially 
when we sin. Why will he restore, why will he restore his sinful people when they decline? Why does he not act in justice and cast away his people after the first 100 restorations? It's because he loves his people even when they sin. If God's love were dependent upon our faithfulness, then whenever we declined, he would cease to love us. If the degree of God's love were dependent upon our holiness, then that whenever we declined, he would love us less. If God's commitment to us were dependent upon our good conscience, then his interest in us would lessen every time we declined. But God declares again and again and again that he loves us in our sin. Even our sin and backsliding does not lessen his love for us. And because that love is fixed, then when we are the most unlovely, he will restore us. Because the Lord loves us in our sin, he will restore us from that which hurts us and grieves him. Because he loves us in our sins, he will restore us from that which hurts us and grieves him. And we should nurture the sense that that is true. God's love for his people is always expressed in the context of their sin. God's love assumes our sin. God loves us in the full knowledge of our sins. Even as late as this morning, I wasn't sure how to proceed from this point. There were six pictures that I was thinking about giving to you of God loving his people in their sins. But that would be too much for this morning to actually go to all those passages and look at them. So I'm, I'm, just, I'm gonna refer you to these six pictures. First, there's a picture in Hosea chapter two. There's a picture of God as a husband who cannot stop loving his adulterous wife. Israel is pictured as a lecherous woman, actually, more than adulterous, very bad woman, Israel is pictured in that way. And God is pictured as someone who can't stop loving her and won't stop loving her and will allure her, it says allure her into the desert, the language, this picture language, and draw her back to himself. And he says that one day she will think of him not as her master, but as her husband because he loves her. In Hosea chapter 11, you have another picture. This time it's a picture of God as a father, unable to forsake the wicked child whom he loves. And I think that some people, some human beings can, in some slight way, identify with this. You have a little child, you love this child, you teach this child everything you can, you're engaged with him, you hold him, you fondle him when he's little, you do all kinds of stuff with him, your affections are completely set on him, and then he breaks your heart, and he wants nothing to do with you, and he wants nothing to do with Christ, and, he, he just, and he, he's so hurtful. But very often, even at a human level, the fathers of such children, the mothers of such children, find that they can't stop loving this kid. Well, that's the picture that Hosea draws of God as a father. He pictures him as a father to Israel as a little boy. And then Israel is so hurtful to his father. And you have the picture in chapter 11 that God will punish Israel because of their rebellions. 
But then in chapter 11, verses 9 and 8 and following, you have a statement of God's emotional commitment to this sinful, rebellious, heartbreaking boy that when he would contemplate punishing him, his heart just churns within him. And he says, I won't do it. And you can read the language. It's like he's, he's anticipated an awful judgment that he will, that I won't, I won't. I'm not going to do it because my heart is boiling within me for this son. You have a very similar picture. This is the third picture in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31 is that text that begins by God saying that he has an everlasting love for Israel. And this text is written when Israel has been cast out of the land and the city of Jerusalem has been sacked and the temple has been destroyed and they're off in Babylon. And Jeremiah writes that even so, he says in Jeremiah chapter 31 verse four, that I have loved you with an everlasting love. Then he goes on to say that he's going to restore them because of how much he loves them. And then in, in chapter 31, verses 18 and 19, you have the language of Israel's repentance. And then in chapter 20, you have a statement of God's attitude toward them. And God's attitude toward them in their sin is expressed in, in this language. Ephraim, my dear son, Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him. In that text, Jeremiah is, um, is anticipating the language of Israel's repentance. And then Jeremiah gives you a picture of God's heart, which animated this whole thing. His heart's churning for Israel. I love you. I will have mercy on you. The fourth picture would be drawn from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And there you have a picture of Jesus advocating for his people in their sins. You remember that text? John says, my little children, I've written these things unto you that you should not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. John is saying that in the context of our sins, where we're not doing what we ought to be doing, where we're not living out what he's written in the first chapter, I've written these things that you don't sin. If you sin, what? The shepherd takes a walk. If you sin, you're on your own. No, if a man sins, the Lord will be an advocate for him. We have an advocate with the Father. Anyone sins, you have an advocate, you're not on your own. You have an advocate with your father. The fifth picture is a picture, a composite picture in Hebrews chapter four and seven. We looked at that actually some weeks ago, but in Hebrews chapter four and verse seven, I'm sorry, chapter four and chapter seven, Jesus is pictured as somebody who's sympathizing with his people in their sins. In chapter, in chapter four, verse 13, you have this statement that the word of God is is sharper and piercer than a two-edged sword and it sees into everything and it says that we are like we're naked and exposed before him, all of our sins, everything is known about us. And that text goes on to say that in that context, in that context, we have a great high priest. In that context, Jesus is a great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. 
He's very sensitive and very aware of all the things that make us weak and that make us ashamed. And in that context, he's sympathetic with us and we're supposed to take heart from that. We're supposed to go to the throne of grace and to seek help and to seek grace because we have this priest who's sympathetic with us in the light of our sins. And this same priest who's sympathetic with us in the Hebrews 4 passage It says in chapter seven, verse 25, that this same one is interceding with us. He ever lives to intercede for us and therefore he is able to save us fully. He is able to save us to the end. This is in the light of our sins. The last picture, the sixth picture, is in Revelation chapter three. Remember those pictures in Revelation three of Jesus speaking to the different churches? Well, in in chapter three you have him speaking to the Laodicean church. They were a messed up church. Jesus was very grieved by them. He identified their sins of pride and self-righteousness and it said it sickened him. He said he was ready to vomit them out of his mouth. That's pretty pretty unusual language. It kind of surprises us that, that there would be that kind of a picture. But the Lord is not indifferent to our sins. We mustn't think that his love for us makes him have some kind of a shield go over his soul and that he's not grieved by the way that we sinned. They sickened Jesus. That's the language of that text. He's ready to vomit them out of his mouth. But those people, he admonished them. He counseled them to come to him. And then he said to them, these people that are sickening him, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens to me, I'm here. I'll come to you. That's how we're supposed to see the Lord when we think of him seeing us in our sins. And so I, I ask you that question. What is your picture of God when God contemplates your sins? What is your picture of the Lord Jesus when you think of him seeing your sins? Do you see him as yearning over you and grieving for you? Do you see him as loving you and determining to restore you? Do you see him as a father eagerly waiting for you to come back? Do you see Jesus as the one who takes your side and intercedes for you and is sympathetic with you and is determined to save you fully? Do you see Jesus as someone who's disgusted and offended, but so wants you to come back and is so eager to communicate himself to you that just keeps offering himself and offering himself and offering himself to you? When you decline and descend into sins and patterns that you despise, are you able to think that God really loves you and he's determined to restore you because he loves you in your sins? That's how we should think of God. John Owen said this about sin. He said, sin is like a fog which creeps over the soul and blocks the divine beams of love and grace. Sounds like a fog. It moves in on your soul and it blocks the sun. It blocks the beams of God's favor and the beams of God's love. It's like your sin is like a fog It blocks from us that which we most need and that which would most tend to our revival, the knowledge and the awareness of God loving us. 
Well, may God use these passages, may God use these passages to send, to send a beam of his love which is so powerful that will break through the fog of our sins. And may these passages upon your contemplation in the future, may these passages and this picture from Psalm 23, 3, may they shine a beam through that fog that persuades you freshly that God really does love you in, in your sins and he will really restore you and there's hope for you. And not to be paralyzed by this fear that I will never be right again, that I will never come back again. The Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I'm very conscious that I'm speaking to you who are the sheep, to you who are people who have heard the voice of Christ and follow that voice and want him to be your savior. It'd be wonderful if I could stir up some jealousy in the minds of some of you who are not Christians that you would want this. You would want to be loved by this Christ. That you'd want to have God through his son to shepherd you through life. That you would want to have this certainty that through all the things that happen in life there is one who stands with you who is shepherding you in pleasant times and in the valley of the shadow of death, that you would want this privilege that goodness and mercy follow you and follow you and follow you and ultimately you'll be in the presence of the Lord forever. This is in Christ. This is for everyone who comes to Christ. This is for those of you who did not come as sheep but could become sheep by simply giving in to the voice of the shepherd. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you do love your people. We thank you that you've loved us and continue to love us in our sins. We are ashamed of them and sorry for them we would be completely undone and without hope if you cease to love us when we displease you. And we thank you that you have declared again and again that that is not true. And together we pray that you would, by the Spirit, pour out your love into our hearts freshly, that we would be renewed in this awareness that you love us. We pray that that awareness of your love would melt all of our hearts and cause us inwardly to want to please you and be near to you, that you would in fact restore any who are in a state of declension, that you would be pleased to hold the truth of your commitments to us before us in a way that is unwavering, and that we would be responsible by being unwavering in our commitment to you. Thank you for this time together. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.